This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, episode 39. Today, my guest is Pear Byland, Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University. We're going to be talking about economics, regulations, and COVID. Pear Byland. Welcome back to the Darcy Jarrell podcast. How are things? Thanks for having me. Things are great. Yeah. Well, we enjoyed your company at the Capitalism and Morality event in Calgary last weekend. Um, did, did you enjoy the time here? Oh, yeah. That was such a fun event. Good people, too. I, I really, really liked the crowd. Yeah, it really was. Um, was that your first time in Alberta? Sure was, yeah. And had you been to Canada at all before that? I've been to Canada several times, but but not to Alberta. So I I, I went to a, a world conference for libertarian movement stuff in London, Ontario, in two thousand. That was my first visit to Canada. Of course, oh. that was with one hundred and fifty or two hundred anarchists, pretty much. So <laughs> I felt at home in Canada. <laughs> yeah. I wonder where I was back then. Uh, I I wasn't too active in in doing stuff like this back then, but uh, I didn't even know that that it happened. Do you, who put it on? Well, they're, they're now called Liberty International, and now I'm on the board too. Uh, it's well, like one of the oldest libertarian organizations. It's a global one, and they have had world conferences in different cities throughout the world for. 35 or 36 years, I think. Mm. Uh, back then, they were called the, the International Society for Individual Liberty, uh, which was a sort of a merger between uh, two organizations, the SIL and the Liberty International, I think they were called back then, uh, an American and a Canadian organization, I think. Okay. But that, that was before my time. Yeah. Okay, very interesting. That's very cool. Um so first of all, one of the things that came up uh, after your great talk on economics at the at the seminar was uh, a, a gentleman commented on building permits and uh, and safety regulations. You know the idea that uh, you know, and I know a lot of people struggle with this that the the state has to be involved in these things uh, or else it it basically doesn't exist. Um, is is there? They have a hard time getting over that that hump. Could you could you give us an overview of why you know the market better regulates things like building practices and building standards than than say the the state does? Yeah, sure. And I, I think the reason that people don't really get it is that the state has sort of monopolized all of these things. So we used to have plenty of like builders' codes, but those were the builders actually living up to certain standards because they had organizations and they wanted to make sure that they don't didn't build anything of, of lacking quality because, of course, then they wouldn't be able to sell their services again. And, of course, the, you might have had different organizations for builders and, and they had different standards and you had different standards in different cities and for different types of buildings and, and what have you. Uh, that there are standards is, is not strange. I, I think the... Because the state has monopolized all of this, we don't see that this could be done in any other way. And we think that it has to rely on on the state's violence. Uh, and otherwise, who would enforce it? That sort of thing, right? Uh, but it's, it's, it's a strange view, I think, because it sort of assumes that anyone who is doing anything for profit or even just payment is trying to necessarily cheat the other party which is not the case in the market. In the market, yeah, you're, you're trading, you might have a short-term relationship with one guy, but as anyone who's tried to sell anything on Amazon or online knows, well, if you screw over that guy, you're going to get a bad review and then you have to start all over again, if you can at all, because that bad review is going to keep everybody from trading with you. So your reputation is basically everything. Uh, so it, you really don't need violence involved uh, but what it does, though, is it opens up for since you have this one body that, that decides on the rules, it opens up for a lot of lobbying so that uh, certain, say, 
they might be an organization for insulation or whatever, um, and they might require that a certain type of material is used for insulation. Uh, and and I think in, in Sweden, where I'm from, uh, I think outer walls need to be 40 centimeters thick or something like that because it needs to fit enough insulation. Well, that's sort of based off of yesterday's technology. So if there is a new technology in, invented tomorrow that makes the insulation so much more efficient, well, you need to use 40 centimeters of that new, more efficient insulation, which is I mean, I'm sure it's going to be kick-ass insulation, <laughs> but you don't need that much, right? <clears throat> and it's like just a waste of resources. And how do you change those rules? Well, you have to go through the political system, and then there's an, basically an open bidding again with all these um, different interest groups uh, who, are, who want, want to have their say, and and then lots of analyses of, of what are the Im- implications and how does that affect employment and whatever else it has nothing to do really with the quality of building anything it it that, that's how they sell it but it's really a, a matter of control and w- the only thing that it accomplishes i think is it well it's a minimum level but at the minimum level level in terms of checking boxes it's not a minimum level of quality and the and quality is something that consumers are are looking for, right? They're not looking for a certain number of centimeters insulation. They they don't care about that. They just want a house that will will stay warm in the winter. Whether it has forty centimeter walls or forty meter walls, that doesn't really matter. What matters is if it's warm or not. And and so so it, it gets rid of, or at least it dampens innovation which is a a huge problem. Yeah, for sure. Well, and the other side of that coin is it also comes with, uh, there's, there's also the incentive to not, uh, to not be responsible for, for providing something better or, or if something does fail and you've met that minimum amount of regulations, you can wash your hands of it and just say, well, it's not my fault. I built it to, you know, this, this standard. But really, that has repercussions in in the overall marketplace on how you know how people interact, right? Yeah, exactly, and that's the problem. It really pulls down quality. We we like to think of it as as pushing up quality, much like the minimum wage should make sure that everybody gets rich working, right? And, and the same thing with build code, building codes that we want high quality housing. But the only thing it does is is it k- keeps the cost of housing up. Because everybody needs to follow those those rules, and it keeps uh, in, keeps inv- innovations and entrepreneurs out. And at the same time, <clears throat> no one needs to go further because this is already established in 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 either laws or regulations from the government. So all you need to do is tick those boxes. And if there is something missing in the code, or there is a new in- innovation that you can do something differently, or Maybe you want to experiment a little bit. Maybe the customer wants a certain a house that looks a little different, or whatever it might be, right? Or in, in my case, I'm really tall. Maybe I want the shower head to be further up. Well, no, there's a code saying that it has to be at, at a certain level, which means I can barely uh, uh, wash my hair, right? Because I have to <laughs> bend and 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 all of this stuff. I mean, it has all these these uh, weird uh, unintended consequences. And you don't get the quality that you need. So it pulls down quality, but whereas at the same time, it pushes up cost. And we really want the opposite, right? <laughs> we want lower cost and higher quality. Not to mention, of course, that most Western countries, they seem to have a housing shortage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for And sure. poor people can't afford to get housing, and they, they live in really crowded in way too small housing. Whereas they would choose, if they had the chance, they would choose bigger housing, but maybe a little lower quality or at least at least less insulation or whatever it might be that the code requires. But they can't get the housing that they would prefer because you can't build those, those kind of housing. So as, as usual, regulations, they, they, they hurt the very people that we would like to uh, support and that we would like to help. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And... And I guess the other thing is there are examples of, um, you know, these kind of standard compliance agencies in the in the marketplace, right? 
Like I've in in a past life, I was a, a cabinet maker and I owned a, a mill workshop. And if we had to, if we wanted to bid on big commercial projects, we had to be part of the uh, Canadian Millwork Association or whatever it is. And they would come by and inspect our shop and expe- and kind of inspect how we built things. And and uh, being a part of that group uh, lent some credibility to our level of standard, and we paid a fee. And it also came with some some perks too. Like we were able to offer a warranty that was backed by this organization because they know that uh, that we built things to a certain standard. So I mean that's a I know and and that's in millwork. Um, it's not heavily regulated like heavier construction, but that is an example of something like that existing in the marketplace. Right, and and we see that in in all kinds of industries. The less regulation there is, the greater the chances you're going to find these these organizations that basically make money off of offering certifications of quality. And you see this in, in say, food production, where animal welfare might be very important for consumers, but it's not as important for politicians and, <laughs> and the state. So instead, you have voluntary organizations that usually not for profits, but they could be for profit too. And they offer certifications and it is their lifeblood. It's their very, very reason that they can continue doing what they're doing and that their certificates are actually worth something is that they stay neutral and that they're not bought by industry, right? As soon as as there's any indication that they might be compromised, that someone might've bought them or whatever, much like, uh, say the CDC and Pfizer, as we experienced now these past few years, right? If there is a chance that it might have been a, a takeover pretty much or, or or that they're influenced by the money so that they offer certificates on, on false basis, no one is going to accept those certificates anymore. Consumers are not going to accept those certificates, which means that they are not able to sell them. So their whole business is gone. It's down the tubes. They, they lose whatever investment they have. This, of course, is not the case for a government agency, right? As usual, government agencies, they work with the exact reverse op- logic, right? That a government agency that fails or fails to cert- certify or if that gives certifications to processes that they shouldn't or maybe they have been basically bribed or something like that, the only thing, the only outcome of that is that, well, maybe someone gets fired at the, in the leadership of that agency, and then they get more money so that they can resist uh, getting <laughs> bribed. Right. But, but that's not how the market works. The market weeds out whatever player is, is dishonest and can't be trusted. The government props them up and they, they subsidize them instead. Oh, that's right. And, and I mean, and... And really, I mean, yeah, with with these government agencies, when they when they fail on these issues, um, they they end up getting rewarded, like you say. They end up getting their budgets increased because uh, what what else are you going to do except throw more taxpayer money at it, right? Right, and they have every incentive to accept money, right? I mean, the bureaucrats they don't make make more or less money based off of whether they offer certificates. But if someone gives them a free trip somewhere or maybe the son or daughter gets into Harvard or whatever it might be, right? Then they have greater incentive to offer the certificate. There's no connection between their certifying something and the business idea. But in, in the market, there is. And of course, also in government, there's one. Why would the government have 10 or 12 different agencies with different types of certifications of the same thing? They wouldn't. But in the marketplace, you would have different organizations offering different kinds of certificates and having different types of quality levels. And if, if they start failing, or maybe there is a, a consumer demand for a, a different type of level, I'm not saying it's necessarily higher on all counts, but it might be a different combination, right? Something that people want. Well, then, then there is a market demand for a new type of organization to be created where you can make money off of certifying based off of that, right? No one, no one talked 10 years ago about the grass-fed beef and now it's it's the thing it seems like for for farmers with cattle. So <clears throat> does the government regulate grass fed that term? No, but you can get different kinds of of private certifications saying that well, we have these 
third-party organizations and they come to our farm whenever they feel like we have no clue when they show up we pay them to make sure that we stick to their standards and, and meet their requirements and therefore you can trust our meat i mean it's that that's that's a selling point right right that's part of the value you offer consumers yeah yeah for sure absolutely and historically i mean before the state became uh, you know this huge regulatory uh, burden on people um this stuff was also regulated within like trades unions and and guilds also right yeah exactly yeah yeah i mean that, that's where it comes from and, and they they did other things too right they 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 provided all those services that we today uh think that the welfare state is needed to provide like different types of 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 accounts for for when you are sick for a while or something happens to your family or whatever it might be those sort of things were taken care of by workers themselves and the labor unions and whatever organizations they had so they pooled their resources to take care of each other which of course meant that well you could choose whether to be part of it or not and you can choose how much to pitch in and you can choose to pitch in some other savings account or pooling account if you wanted to and today, of course, there's a one-size-fits-all, and, and it's provided by the government, which means whoever has deeper pockets can probably influence them quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, so that's interesting, too, because I, I noticed the tweet of yours that was uh, on the term capitalism. And, and I think in what you just said right there really exemplifies like why the term capitalism is problematic in that um, on one hand, me and you are talking about this, uh, we would use the term capitalism to talk about like unobstructed free markets and a, and a, a libertarian utopia type of place. And on the other hand, uh, capitalism is used as this kind of cronious thing where, like you say, whoever's got the deeper pockets can influence government. And, um, and it's used it's funny because it's used interchangeably between even in uh, I know I use the term differently depending on who I'm talking to, right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's really confusing. I try to stay away from the term completely because you you never know exactly what the person you're talking to or debating with how they use the term. And I think that what's problematic is that the definition everybody would agree on the definition. It's it's a an economic system where capital ownership is private. But the problem is that people have all kinds of weird economic ideas thinking that this implies certain things, right? And they would, the term originally was used as a sort of pejorative uh, talking about, oh, well, you just think the rich should get richer. And that's what happens when, when people get to own capital because then, the, then they can exploit workers and whatever, whatever. I mean, all those kinds of Marxist ideas. And to a libertarian, well, capital ownership is necessary for economic growth and creating general prosperity and capital itself the capital ownership does not come with power if you understand the market process you know that oh, capital has only one function that function is to make labor more productive so unless you use it it really doesn't have any value so you it, it's not a source of power so depending on, on your theory of the economy the implication of private ownership or the means of production mean very different things and and that is of course also ideological that certain on on the left you see only problems and you see sort of the the big capitalists with cylinder hats and and a cigar who they don't do anything at all and every, everybody's working their asses off in basically sweatshop conditions so that this this guy can get another cuban cigar um, whereas i mean that existed i'm not saying it didn't exist but was that because capital was privately owned no, it was because capital was limited by the state typically, so that you have different monopolies and with a protected monopoly, then you have power. But then you, then it doesn't matter really how much capital you own or not, it's the, the forced monopoly that gives you power. But since, since people have these different ideas and they use the same term and they throw that around, then usually the, the debates on Twitter and elsewhere, they usually end up being some someone attacks the other party saying you don't know what capitalism and they respond with no you don't know what capitalism is 
Well, I mean, that's a very unproductive debate. It's not going to lead anywhere at all. And yeah. of course, both are going to think that they won. And the other, the, other, the other guy was stupid, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah. So again, his, historically, like, if we look at like the what we, what we would now call like the mercantilist system, which is what you're talking about, like these imposed monopolies and and uh, licenses granted only to the the privileged few, um, you know, in in some ways we've never really escaped that, like, or we've we haven't fully escaped it. Like, there was never a period that I'm aware of in Canada or the United States, really, where it was it was this unobstructed free market um ever existed like we we kind of have gradually been moving away from it and but it's gone up and down over time also right yeah and i think we're getting closer and closer simply because we're we're losing so much and it's becoming obvious that we lose so much uh, by regulating in the state controlling things i mean that's what kept us poor for thousands of years um, so, so we are, in a sense, becoming more free market, but it's very far from being free market. And instead of having direct regulations and direct state ownership of things, we have indirect. So they're sort of starting to more, more and more just nudge us in one direction or the other. And of course, they're going to use such things as CBDCs to control exactly how we behave by nudging i mean it's a nudging with an iron fist but still it, it is nudging they don't they don't tell us uh that we have to consume certain things they just say that well or will say that well the, the money you have in your pocket will just disappear if unless you buy one of these things right so it's pushing us in one direction or the other whereas before they would just say well you, you can only produce this thing and that's it so in, in that sense it's getting better but it, but slowly Right. Yeah. On on now on the subject of the central bank digital currencies, I've been meaning to talk more about this. Can you can you give us an overview of 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 what we're talking about when we say CBDCs? Well, there's this push uh right now by central banks and banking cartels pretty much to basically produce their own type of bitcoin. So so it's used the same kind of technology because now technology has come so far that that they can use at least cryptography to produce digital monies and because you can do that and everything is connected via the internet and what what not else they can on a micro level control how these things can be used and of course they can track them too so they know exactly which coin you use to produce to buy what whatever it was from whom and things like that right so it, it has great benefits for uh, political power because they can see exactly what you're doing. So there's no way for you to escape taxation. And they can also use it for other types of policy because they can make sure that, well, if you if you buy something that is not, say, CO2 neutral or, or whatever the heck they, they, they want to do, right? And then they can punish you by taking some other coins away from you, for instance, or they can as they do in China already with a social credit system, they can shut you out from the banking system or they can say, well, you can't ride on trains anymore, which grantedly would not be a huge problem in the US, but maybe you can't drive a car or maybe they can connect that to simply turning on the engine in your car or flying, whatever. So, so through money, since money is one half of every transaction pretty much, if they can control money in that sense, and of course with with simple algorithms, just making sure that you don't do certain things, or if you do certain things, it's going to be really costly. They can steer each and every individual instead of relying on, as they do now, macroeconomic models and tampering with, say, the interest rate up and down, or 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 subsidies for housing, or or taxation rates, because those are really blunt tools. So if you increase the interest rate, you don't really know where where the investments are going to end up. You just know that, well, there's going to be more investment compared to what, what there otherwise would be. But if you want to steer it, say, no, we want investments exactly into, say, uh, lab meat and away from cattle. Well, then you can steer every individual dollar to be available for lab meat growing and 
make it more costly for cattle farmers or say that cattle farmers, well, you're, you're buying too much feed for your cows, uh, which means they're probably, they're probably breaking wind too much, which is not good for the climate or wh- whatever it is that they're, they're arguing, right? And therefore, we're going to tax you a little more. So we're going to tax the individual more because of their behavior. So it's like a sin tax, but it's, it's much more fine-grained. So they're going to be able to uh, control in detail how we behave, or at least make it very, very costly to misbehave from their point of view. So I, I think that is the the uh, the goal, even though they're probably selling it, going to sell it to us in in some other way. Of course, it's not going to be uh, like Bitcoin in the sense that there's going to be like a fixed supply. Because no, the government is going to produce us just as many as they as they feel like, much like the. Uh, current fiat currencies and and the central bank is going to be in full control you might be able to even um, replace the banking system i mean why would you need different banks uh, and, and financial institutions when everything can be controlled from one big computer at the federal reserve uh, and then of course that uh, this means also that we're well, going to get a world currency why not? I mean, why would there be local ones? We're going to start probably with uh, national ones or say in the European Union with the pan-European one. But then are you going to have the digital uh, euro or the digital US dollar? Well, you might as well just connect them or or pin them to each other. And then we'll say, ah, what, what the heck? It's going to be more efficient to have one system, right? And then you can, can tweak exactly uh, between continents to who does what and who gets to travel and then what else. I mean, how, fa- like how far away are they from something like this? I mean, and, and w- would it look any different than how we use our uh, credit and debit cards right now? And I mean, I mean, my, I'm, I'm curious because our, like w- there's a chance we, you know, there is a, there is the chance we might be using something like this already and not even knowing it, not to sound too conspiratorial, but. Well, in some sense, we are, right? Because all of these transactions with cards and, and online transfers and everything, I mean, they are, they are digital. So there's like an endless uh, trace possible with these things. Uh, cash is, of course, impossible to control. So that's what they're trying to get rid of. And I mean, some countries are have have gotten much further than others. So Sweden, for instance, is basically cashless. If you go to any coffee shop, or whatever, they will not accept cash because they don't know what to do with it. Uh, even bank bank offices, bank branches don't accept cash, which is really odd. I mean, considering what a bank should be, right? Uh, so instead, it's cards or it's a. Uh, your, your bank account number, which is connected to your social security uh, number, uh, and, and you use that instead. And I, I, I don't think that currently they can see exactly what you purchased because the, the Visa and MasterCard and American Express and so forth. I mean, they can see who charged you, right? So who ran the card and what time, what place, were you there in person, things like that. They, they have this information. They don't see exactly what you're buying, as far as I know. So that's, that's probably a minor step because usually the cashier has a computerized system anyway, so they might as well share that data anyway. Right? So, so that's just a small step. Uh, and there's also no way of controlling the actual money that you have. So if you have money in your bank, yeah, they can take it, but today, if they want want you to become poor suddenly, well, then they will have to go to the bank and they will have to try to figure out exactly where you have your money. And if you have gold or silver at home and some and a stack of dollars, they can't really do anything about that without raiding your home. But with a, a digital, digital currency such as CBDCs, what they can do is say, well, okay, it doesn't really matter if you have it in your electronic wallet at home or in a bank or saving somewhere else. Well, they can just say, hey, you with that social security number, we're just going to delete your monies because you haven't, you, you've eaten too much beef or you haven't eaten enough b- bugs or you have, you have, I don't know, breathed too much or whatever it might be. I mean, something that affects whatever policy that they fancy. It, I mean, it, it's not necessarily about com- climate change, but I think that's one of the obvious arguments they're going to use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, and it is scary because we know how uh, quick the Canadian government was to shut down people's bank accounts during the trucker convoy, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, and I think that's what we're going to see. And what was really scary about that was not that they could do it because, I mean, the government can do a lot of crap. Uh, and we know they have the power. What was scary was that people did not protest. That people just sort of said, oh, okay, well... Maybe uh, some people, of course, said this is terrible, this is awful. But others were, well, I mean, it's better if the trucks are not in the city because then they're, they're stopping traffic and, and they're in the way and they're a little messy and whatever. So it's good good that they use these pressure, this pressure on, on them to move. I mean, if people accept these things, well, we're not very far from a social credit system just just like the the one in China. And they they built the infrastructure, they built the software, they built everything. So we can just copy them or, hey, why, why don't we just adopt their software and we use the Chinese system? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a possibility too. I mean, in China, they use they use a chat app that everybody uses since, since they don't really have any other ones, right? You, you can't really access the internet outside of China because there's a uh, the Great Firewall, they call it, right? You can use VPNs, and but they're trying to get after people who do that. So instead, they use WeChat, which is a chat program, a sort of phone system, and payment system in one. Well, I mean, that's one centralized digital wallet already. And you use that for all kinds of payments all the time. And you scan each other's QR codes and when you, when you pay in the store and whatnot else. And... Of course, that is connected to your social credit score. So there are people who have bought the wrong things or been in the wrong place or whatever else. And the, the Communist Party of China, they don't like it. So then you, you try to buy a train ticket and, oops, sorry, you couldn't. Why? Well, I mean, the regime didn't like you. So that's. Yeah, scary stuff. They could, uh, they, they may end up punishing anybody who listens to Pear Byland on the Darcy Jarrell podcast, right? That's that's not unlikely, yeah. It's not unlikely, exactly. I read your uh, uh, latest article uh, in the Brownstone uh, from the Brownstone Institute um, called "Why Econ Cost Was So Seriously Neglected," and we're talking about it being seriously neglected during COVID nineteen. I just want to make sure was that was that the outfit that originally published it, or yeah, the original piece is with Brownstone. Okay. Okay. So yeah, it it was really interesting to me because, you know, you talked to, you started it off talking about opportunity cost and how basically not one single politician and not one single of these uh, virologists and and doctors who were on the on the stage pounding the table to uh, lock everybody in their houses. Uh, there there was no conversation about opportunity cost at all. Yeah, exactly. And in a sense, it's, I think it's Thomas Sowell who says that the first lesson of economics is, is opportunity cost. And the, the, first, the first lesson in, in politics is to, is to ignore that lesson, right? And, and in a sense, that, that, is, that is correct, right? Because in, in politics, they always sell us things without telling us about the cost or pretending that there is no cost, or at least pretend that the cost is much, much smaller than, than it actually is, right? So, so and, and that's the sort of the, the magic of politics. And that's why they can promise all these things and all these systems that are going to solve all the problems and, and make everything abundant magically. Um, so in, in a sense, it's it's their job. I mean, I'm, I'm not condoning their <laughs> their yeah. occupation in any yeah. sense, but but that's that's what they're doing. Uh, and in a pandemic, we really saw this because no one really questioned what they were doing at all. And when they said uh, with epidemiologists and, and and Anthony Fauci and others saying, well, we need to just do the Chinese thing and, and, and do what the Communist Party does when, when there's a virus. We basically lock everybody up in their homes uh, because if, if they just stay at home long enough, the virus is going to go back into hiding or something. Um, and if you only look at that uh, variable and you only see the upside even, or just look at a couple of the downsides, but not the real downsides, and you don't try to figure out both what are the possible good things and what are the possible bad things of doing this, well, I mean, then you can sell it and make it seem like, oh, this is a really good idea. Why didn't we try this before? 
But as anyone who is trained as an economist to think on both sides, I mean, I think it was President Harry Truman who at one point exclaimed that he, he wanted a one-armed economist because the damn economist, every time he asked something, they said, well, on the one hand and on the other hand, right? Because <laughs> So they always gave him him the, both the benefits and the costs of everything, right? So, and that's, that is the role of the economist to try to figure out what, what are the actual upsides and downsides. And with the lockdowns, I mean, we, we even talked about having all these small and medium-sized businesses to pause them for weeks or months and then well, let's just let them restart and let let people stay at home so that they don't uh, so they don't they don't spread the virus and well i mean that means they can't go to work well that's fine because we're pausing the businesses whatever the heck that means it doesn't make any sense at all to me and well how are they going to get food well we'll just send them money well, okay, anyone who knows anything about the economy will go, well, okay, who's going to produce that food? If everybody's sitting at home getting money, someone still needs to produce the food. It has to come from somewhere, right? It's, it's not magic that if you produce dollars, stakes will follow. I mean, that, <laughs> no one really believes the world works like that. But if you just assume, well, I mean, there's plenty of production already underway, so we just skip that part. Right, and then we'll just close everything for seven weeks or half a year or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, well, it's it's uh, absolutely when they talk about um, you know when when the government politicians uses the term essential workers or essential businesses, like like uh, they're the ones that get to decide what's essential to each individual person. Is it's a, it's a scary attitude they they take on. And look and look look at what they what they said was essential too. I mean, liquor stores were essential. Yeah, yeah. Which which doesn't make any sense at all, right? And and you had um, meat processing plants where people were sent home because they tested positive. Well, I mean, if meat processing was essential, then then suddenly it would make sense for them to direct people to work in those factories. Right, because we need to. So it's a controlled economy, completely. It's a planned economy. That's what it is. And if if you think about the modern economy and and its really uh, intensive division of labor and, and specialization, what is an essential worker? Is it is this guy who's who's serving coffee in this mining operation somewhere for some metal that is used in something else? Is that essential or not? Well, I mean, in the economy, it is because it's there. So it provides value. It's part of the value creation process. Maybe you get more out of the mining workers so they can produce more metal so that you can produce whatever good it might be for the consumers in the very end. It might be something that saves someone's life in an ER. Who knows? Right? Yeah. Oh, for but sure. The politicians go, well, coffee might not, that might not be uh, essential. So let's just shut that, get that guy down. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's no way of seeing the actual implications of it. Well, and the, and the other, if we're talking about on one hand, yeah, is uh, deciding if the coffee is essential. But on the other hand, um, you know, everybody's job is essential. Every individual's job is essential to that in, individual, right? Like, so he has to, like him serving coffee is an essential part of his life, right? Yeah, exactly. But, but they, I mean, I think they, they assume that, oh, work is only about money. So if we just make sure that they stay home, which would be in line with their, their view of, of how to handle the pandemic, because then they wouldn't meet anyone, or at least they wouldn't meet their, their colleagues, so they wouldn't spread the, the virus in, in the workplace. Well, then we just send them money to cover for the loss of income. Well, I mean, a job is so much more than just income. For many people, it's a passion. It's, a, it's about socializing with others. And of course, as we saw as well, if people are forced to stay at home with their family, well, that's going to cause all kinds of not beneficial situations at home because people are going to get really tired of each other. We're going to see more divorce. We're going to see more abuse. We're going to see substance abuse. We're going to see all of these things that wouldn't happen if people instead went to work. And I'm not saying necessarily people that it's good for relationships that people stay apart, but, but forcing them to be in the same spot I mean, forcing kids not to hang out with other kids 
and not not to play with others and things like that and sitting in the bubbles and whatever else uh, we force them to do i mean that's that's just it's complete nonsense and it's so costly and no one even bothered asking about the cost i mean some 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 of us of course tried but we were shut down because most of the communication was digital and through social media or in the mainstream media and no one let anyone have any other opinion. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You talk in the article also a, a bit on, uh, on public choice theory, how, how public choice theory, you know, impacted the decisions of these, uh, you know, the decision makers, the, the politicians and, and whatnot. Um, can you give a, give a quick, kind of overview on public choice theories for anyone who isn't familiar and, and then talk about how how that had an impact on the lockdowns and, and mandates and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, very often we tend to think of politicians and decision makers as just selfless public servants. So they apparently have no personal interests. They have no no wish whatsoever to uh, profit themselves or benefit themselves or do anything, say, through policy or through uh, executing or implementing policy because they have a, an interest in one way or the other. But they're just without any type of, of basically morality or, or, or interest. And that's, of course, not true. So public choice is really just a study of politicians and decision makers and, and bureaucrats as though they were people. And, of course, they are. And they, they might have nasty jobs and things like that, but but they, they are still people, which means, of course, that they have their own interests. So I think we've all experienced the bureaucrat, that we need their help, but th that individual bureaucrat, it turns out, really likes uh, to have that, that position of power over you. So you really have to beg and you really have to be nice and whatever, and, and it doesn't matter really what you do, no matter what, you, you're at that guy's mercy because that guy needs to check a box or sign a paper or whatever it might be, right? And some people are, well, I mean, some people really like that and they're going to use that to their own advantage, whether it's, it's, whether it's just the, the, the entertainment of seeing you suffer or stealing your time or, or maybe they can, they can be a little more resistant or hesitant to provide certificates or whatever it might be so that the agency saves money and therefore they get promoted or whatever it might be. I mean, you have all these weird incentives in, in this kind of situation. Um, and, and that, of course, means that, well, all of these bureaucrats, they had certain interests in doing certain things. And and one, one such example would be, uh, what's her name, Deborah Burks, who was in, in the White House. And I think in her own uh, biography, from the time in the Trump White House, where she said, well, she, she just lied to people. And she, she realized that she wanted to shut down the economy. Uh, and she realized that she says in, in, in the biography that, uh, or autobiography, that she, she sold the idea of just shutting down two weeks. That's all we need, because that's, that's going to be enough to just stop the spread and whatever else. And she said, just in the book, that, well, she knew it was going to need to be longer, but getting those two weeks, at least she would get two weeks to figure out arguments to, to extend it because she wanted to do that, even though all the other experts said that's a crazy idea. Right? So she, she had an agenda, which, of course, we would not expect from, from selfless public servants who would just see to, to the public good. Uh, but but there, are no, there is no such thing. I mean, they have some um, bureaucrats with really high sense of, of, of morality and duty as a bureaucrat. So they, they do whatever is public good, even if it is at their own expense sometimes, but. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, that, that's very good. I, I think a good example also is the, uh, you know, the, the politician who didn't speak up in during COVID because they need to uh, squeak through one more election uh, to receive their gold plated pension. Right. I, I, I don't know how many, how many times I can I can name that person here in Canada, right? Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, you don't want too much criticism. And if, if there's election coming close, then you want to make sure that 
you're not on the wrong side. You don't have to be on the right side, but if you're on the wrong side, you might get, well, you might get kicked out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so don't be too vocal because people are gonna gonna hate on you. Uh, so, and that, that's of course your interest. It's not in the interest of the public good, or yeah. or your 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 perception of it. Yeah, it's like, it's like all the in, all the incentives in government work are are reversed. It's almost like that. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's almost like that because it is almost. It is like that. Compared to uh, what it is like in in the marketplace, where you benefit by serving others to to the best degree possible, in government is the uh, exactly uh, the the other way around. If you're an agency, the worse job you do, the the more time you waste, the the less you produce. That's an incentive for you to get a bigger share of the budget next time. And if you have a surplus at the end of the year, if you're really efficient, well, that means you're going to get less from the budget next year. I mean, it, all of government really works with disincentives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that that was my that was my attempt at sarcasm. <laughs> you finish off the article really nicely with a uh, section on it on economic literacy as a civic duty. And I think that ties really nicely into the the conversation we had at the at the end of the seminar in Calgary. Um can you can you give us a an overview of that? Sure. I, I think the the government, I mean whether or not officials in the government understand economics and see the downside, see the real cost, it doesn't really matter because they their incentive is to ignore it. And of course, they do not personally pay the cost either. So, so why would they at all think about it? So, it it really comes down to the population uh, being at least trained in think in thinking that what could be the downside of this, and not just accepting. So, it's in a sense, it's about being being independent, but it's also about realizing how to think about things and consider what, what's the other side of the story. So, the two hands again, right? With that on the one hand and on the other hand, I mean, what, because otherwise it seems like, well, I mean, of course we should have free healthcare or even if it's taxpayer funded, it still doesn't matter because, well, it means someone else is paying my wealth, my healthcare. So it seems like a really good deal. But if you know some economics, you realize, wait a minute, this has to be taken from somewhere, not the money necessarily, because money can, the government creates money every day, right? But the resources, the resources that are used in healthcare, because now it's free, so everybody's going to see the doctor every day, they could be used for something else. Well, what are we missing out on if we have this system instead? So if people had this kind of thinking, so they had economic literacy, I mean, I'm not saying that everybody should get a PhD in economics, and most people are not interested in that, and and it's not a good idea, I think, <laughs> in general, <laughs> but it's not a good investment. Uh, but just learning the basics and how to think about things like an economist, in a sense, would make us immune from a lot of the nonsense that we get get sort of uh, served from both uh, government and in the media. A lot of what they tell us in the media it make, doesn't make any sense at all on the face of it if you think about on this one side and on the other side. But if you just listen and just uh, swallow whatever they tell you, well, then, then we're in trouble. So I think it is, in a sense, a... I wouldn't call it a, a, a duty in, in the sense that it's a legal duty or anything like that. And I wouldn't want to make it one either, but it's sort of a moral duty to be a good citizen. And especially in a democracy where you have a say, well, the, then it really is, in a sense, your your duty to understand what the heck is going on. Uh, and and that you should realize, of course, also that your vote is probably going to be balanced or counterbalanced with someone who doesn't think at all. So that, that's part of the problem here, right? That the more people who understand what is going on and, and can reason just a little bit, like an economist, is, is, is going to be a much better working government overall because there's going to be there's going to be automatic checks and balances because people are not going to take take bullshit as as an answer. That's right. Yeah. Well, and you also make the point of calling out other economists that, you know, they have a kind of moral duty to to teach this stuff to people, right? Yeah. And I think mo- economists failed 
uh, in two big ways during the pandemic. And one was sort of a lot that we've seen this coming for a long time. And the other was just during the pandemic. And of course, during the pandemic, economists should have said, wait a minute, there's a cost to this. Some did, but most of them did not break through at all. And most of them were probably uh, silent, didn't actually say anything, which is terrible. They, they, if anyone should understand this and should should tell people about the, there might be a downside to locking people up, right? Uh, that sort of thing. And But the other one is, is something that I've been asking for and, and and wishing for change for a long time, that economists are pretty damn bad at, at educating people in just basic economic thinking. Uh, and I saw a study some while ago where they looked at students' uh, understanding for basic economic concepts. And they had two groups, as, as is common in the research, right? And one group, both, both of them were uneducated in economics. One group studied economics for one semester, the other studied something else, whatever it might be. And they did a similar test after the fact. And it turns out that those who studied economics actually had worse knowledge of, of economic concepts after studying economics than the people who did not. I mean, this, there might be something wrong with the study, I don't know, but it, it sort of tells you that there's something really wrong here. And you, yeah. that you can take all these economics courses and you don't really know anything about oh, how does the Fed work or, or how does the market work or what is the, the, the place of entrepreneurship in it and what the heck is value anyway. I mean, these basic things that, and what, what does scarcity mean? I mean, people don't even get that. And that's sort of the, what should be covered and probably is covered too, the very first day in economics. What the heck is scarcity and, and why is it important? Instead, pe- people are producing their own homemade theories about post-scarcity and abundance and crap like that, not understanding what they're, what they're, what they're talking about at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, that's a good, uh, I think that's a good place to end it, Pear. Thanks a lot for coming on, and uh, we'll have you back soon. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. That was Pear Byland, who is a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. You can follow him on Twitter at Pear Byland. The Darcy Drill Podcast is a production of CapitalismAndMorality.com, and you can subscribe on Substack. Substack.